Today's show is sponsored by The Wandering Owl. TheWanderingOwl.com Imagine yourself under a starry sky, around the warm glow of the sacred fire, as your hosts Sarenth Odinson and James Stovall talk about shamanism, animism, books, science, psychology, pop culture, and more. Won't you come and join us around Grandfather Fire? Hail Desir, hail Phaetor, hail ancestors all. Hail to the shamans, the priests and priestesses. Hail to the Spekona, the Spe Mother, the Sedkona, the Sed Mother, the Runarmal, the Paco, all the holy people of our lineages. We listen to you with open ears, open heart, open mind, breathing in your wisdom so deep that you share with us each and every time we take our time to listen. Hail to all of our ancestors. Vestu Heil. Welcome, everybody, to Around Grandfather Fire. You are listening to episode number two. I am James Soval, and the man doing those wonderful opening prayers is Sarenth Odinson. How are you doing tonight, Sarenth? I'm excellent. Great. Uh, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us again. Uh, if you are new to this show, it's the second episode, so you can find us in a lot of different places. Who knows where you're listening right now? But we're proud to announce that our show is now available on lots of different platforms. There's the Anchor app, and that's a great app because you can applaud certain sections of the show. You can leave feedback, voicemails that we can use on the show. But you can also find us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Public Radio, Stitcher, and other places as well. So it's pretty cool to be out there so far and wide in the world. You can also find us online. Uh, I am on Twitter as uh, James at the Owl, and you can find Sarenth at Sarenth. Yep, and sarenth.wordpress.com. And if you want, want to drop me an email, it's sarenth at gmail.com. Yep, you can also find me uh, email-wise. You can email me jim at thewanderingowl.com. That's the little place that my wife and I own, online store, but I also do classes and house cleansings and shamanic coaching and all kinds of other fun stuff just like Sarenth does uh, he's also a master rune reader so if you're interested in getting a reading make sure that you look at him and his profile to find that and uh, you can find me on Instagram too as wandering white hat where I'm posting up mostly cat pictures and comic book covers but occasionally some other metaphysical stuff whatever whatever trips my fancy <laughs> yes and uh, you'll find me on Pinterest uh, pinning all the heathen Viking stuff. Same email. Yeah, you know, and I, there's not, I, I actually kind of like the fact that with the show we can have that little bit of diversity and you guys can see us. We're real people. We're out here. You know, you see pictures of, of our families and our cats and, and um, just all the things that we're into. You know, there's just more to people than you could ever know. And so we're kind of sharing all that with you. It's kind of fun. Yeah, I'm actually really excited that we're we're able to kind of expand uh, 
the audience's view of who and what we are. And it'll be interesting when we start getting into, um, you know, our personal things like our fandoms, what things interest us besides um, just the spiritual aspects. But, I mean, it forms the core of pretty much everything I do and I think everything you do, too. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> um, while we're doing the opening, too, I want to do a shout out real quick. As long as you're if you're listening on the Anchor app. You can listen to them other places as well. But on the Anchor app, I want you to look up a couple other podcasts called Everyday Animism, which is one. And the other one is What in the Weird, W-Y-R-D. Those are two other podcasts. They have a lot to do with animism and shamanism and spirituality, similar to our shows. And so take a listen to those as well. Let's join their fandom and while we're at it. Indeed. Kelly Harrell's good people. Yeah, we're uh, we're going to have her on very soon. We're reviewing the advanced copies of her new book, which will be out really soon. And um, yeah, we're going to have her on for a really nice long interview and kind of go over that book and talk about the other things that's going on with her. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And the uh, the new book is uh, her book is the Runic Book of Days. So that'll be really cool to look over. And uh, I remember when we had her on for. Um, Jaguar and the Owl. She was great fun, and I'm looking forward to talking with her again. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I should probably look up uh, the old episode of Jaguar and the Owl that she was on and throw it on as a uh, as a best of show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's kind of fun. Other interesting things? Anything else interesting that you've been watching or listening to lately? I've been getting into a couple of um, new bands. Uh, Heiliger is one of them. Um, Flicht is another one. And so my, my uh, musical selections have been kind of slowly bro- broadening out from uh, just Ward Runa and a couple of uh, metal bands. And so it's been dipping my toes into the more Nordic folk and uh, German folk bands. That's and really so cool. a lot of these, yeah, a lot of these guys get played at uh, big events like Midgard Bloat, and so well, that would be like the, <laughs> if if I had to pick a concert that I would like to go to, like as my only concert I get to go to, and that's it for the rest of my life. Probably be one of the Midgard Bloat ones with um, Einar and Ward Runa and all the the rest of the crews that they they put together for that event. That sounds really awesome. I'm gonna have to check those out myself. I'm going the opposite way. I've been on, like on a David Bowie kick lately. I put like Ziggy Stardust and I'm I'm like repeat. I, I listen to it twenty times in a row. I swear. I don't know why. There's something you wake up sometimes and you're not sure. And I just woke up one morning and I had that guitar riff in my head and it just would not let go all day. It was kind of crazy. Oh man, um, I came really late to the David Bowie party. I got into David Bowie just prior to him dying. His last album, Black Star, oh, yeah. hooked me hardcore. And and he died a week later. And I was yeah. like, oh, I, I actually, I don't even think, I, technically, I think it was the next day. Because was it? I, yeah, because I when that album dropped, a lot of the videos he, he released onto YouTube right away. Mm-hmm. And um, so it was after we had closed down the Wandering Owl for the night. Uh, the storefront and I was downtown Jackson and it was late and it was dark and I was sitting there in the front window with nothing but the street lamps lighting me watching this these videos on the computer and I'm just like 
this is this is all about his death. This is all about his passing on to the next realm. And I was I was I was just so in, in mourning already watching this. It was just so heart wrenching realizing that he was saying goodbye. And if I recall correctly, I think it was the next day when I got up that that it was in the news that he had passed. Yeah, it was it was really quick, and it was like. Uh, tra- his his music was transcendent. I um, you know, especially the the uh, the first two YouTube videos he brought out really struck me. Um, I can't remember uh, that's the Villa of Ullman, I think it is, uh, and uh, the la- uh, the other one was Lazarus. Yeah, Lazarus. Oh my God, the video for that. Oh, that's intense. That's really intense. And there's there's such. When I watched it, I got serious goosebumps because I got serious Odin and Dionysus vibes off of that. And it was like, wow, bam, instant connection, and I was hooked. And I started listening to a lot of his discography at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, and there was so much of him I didn't know because yeah. when I was growing up, you know, I didn't listen to that. I listened to you know. Chicago, America, Van Halen, that kind of thing. And and Bowie was outside of the purview of stuff that I was exposed to mm-hmm. when I was young. Mm-hmm. And so it was almost like a coming home kind of a feel when Black Star played. And I, I you know, the only thing I knew him in was Labyrinth. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So like when people are David Bowie, the only thing I could think of was Goblin King. And he's got this entire discography that is just amazing and not just in terms of of length but in terms of the breadth of the kind of music he put together with his groups um and the the people that he would sign on to tour with well you know what's always amazing to me is that he didn't like his own voice isn't that always the way though yeah it is but i mean it's just astounding that that he literally was forced to recording some of his own music at the beginning because he couldn't find anyone else to record it but he hated how he sounded but that's not uncommon as you say john lennon hated his voice and and there are other artists that dislike their voice but i don't know it always speaks to me a lot especially if i'm getting on stage to do something or even teach a class or something it just it just reminds me that even the these people that are amazing and and deific in their ability are self-conscious about it almost to a fault yeah i'd say um a lot of the the folks who define music for a generation tend to be you you mentioned john lennon um you know for grunge folks that'd be nirvana and um you know the 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 guys from lincoln park for all i mean uh Chester, um, and and how his voice defined an entire generation of rock, with Mike Shinoda doing backup vocals and doing a lot of the the rap vocals was something that for for folks that were really into that group really defined an entire age of our lives. I think that you know. For for the artist, it's it's really easy. You know, this is my voice. I live with it every day. But for us, it, it defines an experience, where there's certain notes of our lives that are wrapped up in those songs. Right. Yeah. I, speaking of Bowie, I know you saw it online. 
the same time I did, uh, the David Bowie tarot that's coming out. Right? Seen that? I want that so much. I don't even really read tarot or oracle cards that much anymore. Yeah, I'm usually just the rune guy. So, you know, and going, ooh. I've never felt, there's only been one deck that's ever really felt comfortable for me, and I've never had a physical representation of it. It was always online. But when I saw that one, I'm like, shut up and take my money. <laughs> you know, yep. it's like, yeah. <laughs> I want that yeah. so bad. Yeah, the only tarot deck I actually own is the Wildwood Tarot, mm-hmm. and I love it. Mm-hmm. I love that deck. But I looked at the David Bowden one and went, "Oh, oh, this is this is something very different." Right. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I would really like a copy of that myself. That's and the artwork just looks amazing. And what's neat about it is, with an artist that spans so much time like that. If, if the creator of the tarot deck, deck has done it well, there's so many musical tie-ins. You're going to be able to look at the artwork and what it represents, and you're going to be able to tie a song or a moment in a song in with each card, which is just going to make an extra oomph. It's going to be great. I'm, Yeah, i got to try it. i got to find one. Yeah, I mean, just looking at the artwork right now, I'm, I'm just in awe of the symbolism they packed in. You know, and... and to be fair, there's some some uh, decks that, you know, they pack a lot of symbolism, and this is some really beautiful digital artwork, you know, and this is this strikes me as just the right amount of digital. It's not overproduced, if you mm-hmm. know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Like this is definitely stuff that Bowie himself would have probably grooved on. Yeah, I agree with you. Anything I've been also. Um... I don't know. Music's been a weird is a weird thing for me. Like I, there's certain hooks of certain songs that are just have always been really spiritually resonant with me, and um, mm-hmm. and it's weird because so on a given day I don't listen to a lot of music. Uh, I tend to listen more to podcasts and that sort of thing. I enjoy other people's voices. I find those soothing. Mm-hmm. So it's it's maybe because I don't experience music as much that when I do it's so important or it, it taps so much into magical and psychic powers. Um, uh, you know, there's just certain songs that are just amazing. Well, can you, can you describe some for me? Yeah, sure. Like um, uh, Jerry Rafferty's Baker Street. I can just, that one can, that one's like a hypnotic trance for me. You know, it's got so many layers and elements to the music that I can go to a trance state just on the first few notes of it. And I can, I can just put that in loop and cycle. Um, the uh, Rolling Stones, Give Me Shelter, when the first bit of music is coming in, before the lyrics have begun, but it was, it's just guitar and how the, and then the, the other instruments come in and how they overlay and overlap. Once again, it's just a very energetic and spiritual moment for me. Like if I'm trying to summon a spirit or if I'm trying to project magic or if i'm trying to enter a journey state those are the loops that keep going through my head gotcha and and so like on a normal day like i said i might be listening a lot to podcasts to news and that sort of thing so when i need that boost those are the the types of songs i tune into if that makes sense yeah it does there's there's certain stuff that i cannot listen to or i will slip into a working headspace yeah, exactly. Um, right, right. Uh, 
you know, Ward, like I, I referenced Ward Runa. Uh, another one um, is a, a Neolithic band uh, whose name escapes me, and I will look them up in a little bit. But um, the, especially with Ward Runa and Halem, uh, those are real big trigger bands for me because those will put me right into a receptive headspace. Um, another one that I got to avoid is Linkin Park. There are some music, there's some of oh, their yeah. songs that will put me right into a berserker headspace. That'll put me right into, okay, let's get things done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, there's uh, certain, um, dream on by Aerosmith is another one I try to avoid <laughs> because it gets me really hyped and I have to write or I have to do something. So. Right. Yeah. No, I understand. I'm right there. There's, there's just certain ones that they'll, They'll throw you right in that state, whether you want to or not. Sometimes. Uh, what's the What's the one uh, uh, Polish uh, Slavic one to uh, Laboratorium? Is that it? Is that the how you pronounce their their name? That I do not know. Oh, I'll have to send you a link to that one. I'll post it up in the show comments. They they do uh, once again very. It, it's a lot of. Uh, female voices and drums alone mm. but the way they layer things and it's, it's old slavic um prayers and chants to the sun and things like that so it's those are pretty amazing so the group that i was referencing was paleo wolf oh okay yeah i've heard of them I've heard of them yeah um my one of my my students my kindred mates turned me on to them and so we work with paleo wolf when we're doing really deep journey work or we're doing um especially when we're doing work with our our hom our astral double our animal self that kind of thing mm -hmm. um so i can't listen to paleo wolf either it'll suck me straight into work headspace <laughs> but that's that's good because if i if i got a break at work and i want to bang some writing out i kick oh, one right. of those yeah, exactly. those on and boom away i go i don't have to think about it right you know it's amazing how writing uh those songs, songs like that will bring on writing states really easy. Even the silliest pop songs. Uh, when I was doing a lot of just, you know, pulpy fan fiction sort of stuff, you could just, depending on the song that came on, that ended up being the whole plot of your story for that day. Yeah, I, uh, you, you can tell when I'm, I'm writing a, um, a fight scene because there's certain music I got to put on for it. <laughs> right. You know, or when sense. I'm, when I'm, uh, it, it depends on the genre I'm writing too. Because like if I'm doing you know futuristic sci-fi, I'll put on something like Blade Runner or the Shadowrun soundtrack from mm -hmm. the Super Nintendo game. Um, there's certain headspaces and moods I associate with, um, and and the the beautiful thing for for the video game music I listen to is at least for the Shadowrun music is that it definitely puts me in a shamanic headspace for city work because oh, right. of the, the story of the Super Nintendo game that, makes that I grew sense. up yeah I grew up with it as a kid so there's a bunch of hooks in the music that I'll groove into and so all you got to do is just throw that on YouTube and boom away I go awesome anything else you've been reading or getting into the last couple weeks since we talked last <laughs> So I'm prepping to start reading Terry Pratchett because Amabron uh, gave me a bunch of books. <laughs> so now I've got to slowly work through them. <laughs> For those who don't know, our friend Amabron, he's a uh, 
Well, I think he would say anywhere else, in the, any anywhere else in the world, he's just uh, into witchcraft. But here in the United States, it's British traditional witchcraft. He is uh, mm-hmm. one of our dear friends, and yeah, yeah. So he's hooking you up with the Pratchett, huh? Oh man, yeah. I mean, there's there's so much of conversations with with you and him that I don't understand because I've never read Pratchett. <laughs> right. Like the only thing from Pratchett I've actually ever read cover to cover, he did with Neil Gaiman. That was Good mm-hmm, Omens. Mm-hmm. Fabulous book, but Pratchett has never been a main squeeze of mine. So when you guys are quoting Granny Weatherwax, I'm like, the hell are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I've been, uh, I've been kind of digging the comics again. I've been on a Wonder Woman kick because they, her, uh, the main story arc on, on the Wonder Woman comics has been going really interesting places where, um, they're dealing a lot of pantheons that are outside of the normal Greek and Roman and, and Norse even. Uh, there's a, a character she's interacting with, which is she's kind of the Aztec equivalent. And then there's another uh, Amazon that was a group of Amazons that left Amazon Island and they ended up following the Egyptian pantheon and, and worshiping and working with them. And so those are interesting story arcs and, and the, another Wonder Woman, they picked up, a, there's a Justice League Dark series that's just starting up where Wonder Woman has picked up with Swamp Thing and Man Bat and Constantine and a few others. Oh, because, that's awesome. Because magic is essentially gone evil. Magic's essentially trying to to destroy reality. And, and so she's trying to put together a team to try to save it. So that's a pretty cool lineup. I'm enjoying that quite a bit. Well, I mean, it's Constantine. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and then, you know, other new stuff. They started off a, a new Fantastic Four series, which uh, they'd been on hiatus for a while because Reed and Sue were supposed to be lost in in space, essentially. And so there had been nothing going on with those characters. And, and the story, the first, uh, first issue here is about what you expect, but there's a backup story of Doctor Doom, and it's like, oh, man, because Doctor Doom is one of my favorite characters of all time. Like, not even favorite villain, like just favorite characters and and some of the lines that he speaks at the end of this issue for that little little subplot with him are just like they're they're goosebump moments they're really freaking awesome so i've been enjoying that and the last one i want to last one i possibly want to give out is uh there's a independent comic uh, image comics it's called unnatural i picked up the first issue of that a few weeks back on a recommendation and uh, the second issue just came out and it's a really interesting comic because so it's it's um, they're animals but they're people they're they're uh, humanized what you know, you're better with language than I am with the uh, oh anthropomorphic word. that's it but the thing is they're in a society that's led by a a very dictatorial type leader and there is a huge taboo against um, having any sort of love or relationship with another animal species and people are they're being put to death for it and then there's now there's this subplot where there's kind of almost a conspiracy or a magical thing going on that's starting to flesh out a little bit in the second issue like old books that refer to characters that are that are alive now and you're wondering how that happens so it's really kind of fascinating because it's a real good uh, look at our current uh, Western culture through that lens, which is making it kind of interesting. 
Well, that's awesome. Yeah. It sounds like something I should be picking up then. It is. It's it's a great series so far. I'm looking forward to uh, issue three should be out in another couple weeks. So I'm really looking forward to that one. Gotcha. I'm currently on a backlog as far as comics go. I, um, I've been collecting American Gods and Spider-Gwen. Oh, yeah. And Spider-Gwen has been an amazing run, and I absolutely love it. I love this reimagining of Peter Parker's character. Um and not even Peter Parker's character, but, but just Gwen Stacy taking center stage has been right. amazing. Um, and American Gods, you know, I haven't even cracked it yet. I got so much backlog because I've got Terry Pratchett and now I've got all this to go. So I'm um, up you. to current content. But uh, the Spider-Gwen series has been just amazing. The artwork is excellent. And they make a believable teenage girl into a superhero. And it's not just... You know, all sex appeal is not just, you know, one thing or the other, or she's a silly girl or whatever. She's not played for laughs. It's this is a serious thing, and they're taking this character seriously. And I love that uh, Marvel has embraced their multiverse plot lines so heavily and has gone really cool places with it. And so Spider-Gwen is just a treat for me. I've heard nothing good things about it. I've never actually read any of it, though. Yeah, when I'm done with this, I'll be more than happy to loan it to you because it's, be it's good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Well, I guess turning our, our minds a little bit more to, to, to a little bit more serious matters, we uh, we got linked in recently. Some people uh, linked us into some articles, and we have been following and, and now contributing, donating to uh, a group that's going on here in Michigan. There is a Line 5, which is a line that runs under the Mackinac Straits here in Michigan, and it's been bumped by boats and hit by anchors. And we're really looking at, at something that if it broke or if its decay continues, could poison the greatest freshwater reserves in the world. And so a lot of people, a lot of natives are doing what they did with the other protests and they're setting up a camp where they're going to try to protest this line five and bring awareness to it and, and try to halt another one of these black snakes before something goes wrong. And so uh, Sarah and I have had some conversations with some people online and we've been talking with them on Facebook. And I'm going to try to get one of these people on the show that are the organizers of this event. But if you're interested in following what's going on, there's a Facebook page, uh, Anishinaabek Camp dash Shutdown Line 5. And they've got requests up there for various materials and things that they could use. There's also a link for a PayPal page. Excuse me, keep bumping my desk here. A PayPal page where you can donate to the camp. And they just put up a, a donation list today of things that they're looking for. They need batteries and controllers, communications devices, handheld radios, just all kinds of things like that to help get the word out and communication with the camp and to keep things moving. So if you would like, please check out that Facebook page and get involved. Let's get involved and keep this process going. Yeah, I mean, this, like you said, you, this is the largest freshwater reservoir on, the, on Earth. And as a Michigander, you know, I look at all five of these lakes as goddesses, as as living, breathing goddesses, and 
it is, I firmly feel our duty to protect their bodies, to keep them from being befouled, especially when so much of that is right in our hands and there's simple things that we could do to make sure it doesn't happen. And so, you know, it's not, it's not just, you know, you doing one thing, it's supporting the protesters, the Anishinaabek protesters of line five and it's writing your Congress people and it's writing the great lakes compact, um, signers, you know, and all the various people that have their hands in the committees around those. So it's getting a hold of, you know, Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio. It's getting a hold of our representatives and saying, Hey, you really need to pay attention to this and wake up because this, this could wreck everything because if we thought that Lake Ontario's algal bloom was bad, right. just imagine a line break and yeah. boom. <laughs> and a lot, a lot of these people were at Sacred Stone Camp and at Standing Rock and now they're here in Michigan because just like the concern was for water out west, the concern for water has moved here. Water is life and so we need mm-hmm. to help support. You know, and I'm not I had a wonderful conversation with uh, Nancy Showman, who is mm-hmm. one of the organizers of the camp. We spoke for about an hour on the phone. And, you know, I what they're doing there is so sacred. And they're setting a grandfather fire. And they're, they're putting in the spiritual work. And they're settling down. They need all these supplies because they're trying to get set up for the winter. They want to be there year-round and, and fighting this fight. Yeah, when we say they're doing the pipeline protest, we're not we're not joking. They're staying there through the winter. Yeah, exactly. If they have to. And this is in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so you know this is not a, a warm place or Upper Lower, I should say. But um, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's not um, it's not going to be easy, and they need all kinds of support. But like when I spoke to when I spoke to Nancy, I, I wanted to let her know that I'm not trying to step in front of their battle, but I need to do everything I can possibly do to support them. Yeah. And I, I'm hoping that a lot of you as listeners will help do that as well. Yeah. I mean, if, if all you can do is give $5, that's $5 they didn't have. Yeah, exactly. And it'll go towards uh, things that they need to keep it going. If, if you're interested in donating, um, you, can, you can tell them we sent you their way. It's paypal.me forward slash water protectors. And that, that money's all going to their camp. Uh, there are there are people that own that that land and they're allowing people to use it to build that camp but they're really looking for basic supplies they're looking for wood to build kitchens they're looking for like wood paneling ways to set up shelving that's protected from the weather they're looking for heavy army tents they're looking for all those basics they even need firewood i mean the 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 land that they're on does not have a huge abundance of firewood. And so they've been needing to bring firewood in, but because where they're at, cell phone communication's not good, which is why they're not on the show with us yet. Uh, transportation's hard to come by. They're having trouble getting firewood in there. So every little bit of money helps with getting this stuff done. Yep, absolutely. So uh, thank you to everybody who is contributing and will contribute. Because your your help is sorely needed. Yeah, and if, if you're interested, like I said, I'm going to put uh, in the show notes, I will put the link to that PayPal page, to the Facebook page, and also to an article uh, from Michigan Radio about what's going on up there so you can find out more information. They're planning a big flotilla on Labor Day to go out onto the Straits of Mackinac and protest. 
So they need support for that. And the more people that turn out, the better. The more people that are going to show up, that's more media coverage, that's more attention to this issue. So and any little bit helps. You know, a lot of people, you're going to count Labor Day as your last big vacation for the summer anyway. Think about grabbing your kayak or grabbing a, a, a boat heading up there the Straits of Mecca and helping join this protest. Just make sure you take supplies with. That way you're not taking from their supplies they already need. Add to them. You know, have good reciprocity and good honor for the work that they're doing and, and make sure you supply that camp. Well said. Thank you. Thank you. So um, now that we've got that off our chest, we really want to talk about that. I'm really excited. I'm, I'm hoping we can get mm -hmm. uh, some of the camp organizers on to talk with us a little bit. But like I said, Internet coverage, Skype, uh, Skype's almost impossible. And even their phones aren't working half the time. So. It's a very different. If you've ever been in Upper Michigan, or the Upper Peninsula, or the Upper Lower, it is amazing. It's one of those places on Earth that I don't care what the cell phone map says. You walk ten feet and it's gone that signal. Yep. Yeah, having gone up there a couple of years ago with the family, we went up to the Porcupine Mountains mm -hmm. and stayed in the DNR yurt for a week, and that was nothing short of magical. Um, because it's all rustic camping up there. You know, you, you get water from the creek, you boil the water, and then, you know, you have to get your wood together. I mean, the first thing we did after we got settled in and got ourselves sprayed down with an ungodly amount of bug spray was because <laughs> we went at the totally wrong time. Uh, <laughs> um, we went in June, which was a big mistake. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, we won't yeah. Be doing oh, that. deer fly season, huh? Oh, God. <laughs> that carried us away. We were making a lot of blood offerings, whether we wanted to or not. Right. Um, but it was it was a beautiful experience. And, you know, being able to sit with, uh, first we passed by Lake Michigan, made, sat and made offerings. And then eventually we got up to Lake Superior and we got to spend basically a whole week on our shore. Mm -hmm. And it was holy. There's no other, you know, there's no better way that I could put it. It's the holy experience to sit there on the edge of those frigid waters and to be in her presence for a week. And to think of that coming into danger just chills my blood. You know, um, I'm astounded always that, I mean, you know, to, to wax political for a second here, but I'm, I'm always shocked that I'm not shocked by the current administration but i'm i'm just shocked by all the other politicians of both parties who just can't seem to understand that you know you can do all this fracking and drilling and all these other things for a short term gain but once the the water is all polluted there's there's nothing left that's it yeah you, you cannot drink oil you can't yeah. do... <laughs> I, I, I mean you know, and what even you, even in even the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, there's there's so much on that on on that you can find online that he does well, but his record with working with the natives or certain environmental factors like with those tar sands is terrible. They're they've all sold out. Yeah, and I mean, I think this this speaks to the short-sightedness with which a lot of people live their lives and a lot of people conduct their business. Um, the way that 
we deploy ourselves in the landscape, doesn't it? I mean, when you talk to, to real estate agents, even they're like, Oh, well, you know, you don't want to make too many modifications to this home. You might want to sell it someday. Well, hang on a minute. Aren't I going to be living in it for the next 50 years, 40 years? Um, you know, it's always, well, well you know, it's, it's always the money question. Well, money doesn't matter if I can't drink the water, if I can't eat the fish, if my environment is so befouled that I can't live in it, money is literally meaningless. And yeah, I, I think maybe we could, we could go into, um, money in the spirits of money on a different podcast, but I think that the devaluation of money as a medium of reciprocity taints even the core concept of what money is supposed to do. It's mm-hmm. not so it's, it's not supposed to carry this sellout mentality with it. It's supposed to be, this is how I take care of my obligations. Yeah. Maybe, you know, so, maybe a whole show on the money of the tier, the money spirits would be appropriate. Yeah. Because I, I think that uh, a lot of our foundational relationships suffer from this, this, this poisoning of it's all short term. It's all what's most beneficial for a handful of companies in a very short amount of time. And, and the heck with externalities. It's what they call uh, externalities is all the stuff that the community around you is forced to deal with when you're done doing business. You know, um, I first picked that term up from the corporation, which was a CBC documentary on how corporations function. And um, this guy who eventually turned his whole company into as green as humanly possible, making carpets. Um, when he first started off, he had no idea what the environmental cost of doing business was. It never occurred to him because it was all numbers. Mm-hmm. And so when he really started looking and started seeing what he his company was doing just in terms of externalities, meaning dumping your pollutants into the water or your pollutants into the air, well, externalities is the way that you figure out how they're they're cutting costs because that's how they avoid having to pay for all the effluence they put out, and they put it on the environment, and the environment can only take so much. So, yeah, I could, I could go on this for a while. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just hope I, I hope uh, Great Spirit Gichimana do hear us and and help us to change people's hearts we as individuals doing our prayers and doing our ceremony we do as much as we can to change our own lifestyles but some of these changes have to come from the top down we have to change people's hearts to make these changes happen jay mcwitch well are we in a serious tone here all of a sudden? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's hard not to when it's, it's the... hard. It's so hard because it's... I'm with you. I, I have a relationship with those lakes and with these waters. And, and the house that I live in is close to the headwaters of the Grand River and the Kalamazoo River, which both feed into Lake Michigan. And I, I love those lakes so much. I love these rivers so much. And I can't imagine losing them. Yeah, because I mean, at that that point, it's it's over for most of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we way more than Michigan, even though I mean, we well, those lakes true. are so connected to 
larger ecosystems and weather systems and everything else that happens in this area, it's it would yeah. just be so devastating. Yeah, it would it would absolutely devastate environments that we we wouldn't even be able to see until they started suffering. Mm-hmm. I fervently hope and pray that that this not just this line because this is not the only thing we need to be concerned about. Uh, it was a couple of years ago when the current administration was talking about negotiating with Canada for taking on uh, nuclear waste mm-hmm. in. Uh, was it 10 miles to the coast of Lake Superior or something like that? Yeah, yeah it was uh, Huron, Lake Huron. Huron, Huron. Just off the coast of Lake Huron, yeah. It was about 10 miles offshore. They assured it would be buried deep enough where it would never affect the water, but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Why, why take that risk? Even here in Michigan, and something that's happening around the country that a lot of people might not be familiar with, you just look at the dioxin poisonings that are going on. You know, and these are things, those are a byproduct of our warfare in our society because we, a lot of the dioxins were used on military bases for prep and fire extinguishing and all these other things. And now they are in the groundwater. And we don't even know with all this fracking what's going on. We don't know what they're putting in the ground. They could be putting more of that stuff in the ground all the time and we'd have no way of knowing it. Yep. I mean, and and the way they get around that is that very often those are called trade secrets. Mm-hmm. And the exact formulation of what goes into the injection wells is, well, it's trade secret. You're not allowed to know. But it's in our community water now. You know, and so when people say, oh, well, you know, they just want to get natural gas out of the ground, I go, well, hang on a minute. Set aside the debate about whether or not this causes earthquakes. Let's Let's take a look at what they're actually injecting into your wells. Let's look at what happened to Pennsylvania. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or even, I mean, Oklahoma getting earthquakes that they never mm-hmm. used to have before. We're, how can we just be so short-sighted as a species? I mean, I realize it's a, it's a redundant question because that's the, the example our species has always said, is that we don't pay attention to these crises until it's almost too late. But... Man, you'd think we'd be smarter. We, you'd think that our wisdom would have caught up with our intelligence a little by now. I think we have a shot at doing it. I think that efforts like, and this is where I take a lot of hope from Line 5, is that you know the Minikoni protesters were very well supported by a lot of people within and without our communities. You know, it wasn't just a small thing. It was they were getting media attention. They were getting support. They were getting celebrities coming in there and saying, hey, we need to pay attention to this. So it, it, it I think it is slowly turning into an all-hands-on-deck approach at this point because Mother Earth isn't taking no for an answer. It's you, you need to grow up or suffer or the consequences. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah we're going to get hit hard one of these times and I'm not sure not sure what to do about it at this point in time other than keep praying, keep talking and keep hoping yeah and I think that that, you know for our listeners you know take heart because every little thing you do to the positive does make a difference you know it is really easy to look at the enormity of what we face and despair but that's where these black snakes draw a lot of their power. They mm-hmm. think that you are just going to be cowed. Don't, don't let that be the case. I mean, for anybody that saw how heavily armed the police response was 
to the Dakota XL Pipeline protesters, they stood their ground. They were heard. We have a real chance at turning all of this around and smiting this black serpent. You know, and for those who are magically inclined, I'm going to dip back into a, a small lesson from uh, Jaguar and the Owl, and that's every time you see the people who own these pipelines, just cross their names out, put it on a sheet of paper. For instance, Enbridge, which owns that pipeline in line five, put the name down on a sheet of paper and keep crossing that name out. And every time you do that work, donate a dollar, five dollars, whatever to the protesters make your magic not only consistent with your values but make your magic work in the world mm -hmm. not only on a spiritual level but on a very physical in their face level well, make I, your make your magic work on multiple planes at once on an animistic level you called it the black snake so did i this is a animistic standpoint, these are spirits, and they're spirits that are feeding on fear and greed and making people feel powerless. So, be, you know, your donations help, your calls to your representatives call, voting helps, it all helps, but the prayers and the offerings, the cleansings, the burning of sacrifices, these are all spiritual things that will fight something that is a spiritual enemy. This black snake is a spiritual enemy as well as a physical one. And we can fight that through those prayers, through that work, through ceremony, through our allied spirits. We can do this. We are not helpless. That's something that all magical traditions have in common is that they are a way for people who feel powerless against larger things and larger forces to fight. Look at the example of the, the Haitian Revolution. People who think they are powerless are not if they use and talk to and ask for help from spirit. So don't stop fighting. Don't lay down for this. Don't lay down for local things either, because the way the black snakes breed is in small spaces. Um, and they grow bigger. Mm -hmm. So there's so many different ways to fight that don't just let yourself be pinned down to, well, if, if this isn't the result, well, it's, it's all for nothing. No, 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 no. I, I go to a, uh, I'm paraphrasing a quote from the Talmud, you know, the work may not end with you, but you are not permitted to put it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Because if we are, if we are truly dedicated to mother earth, you know, then we need to fight for her because she's our mother. We have that duty to her. So wherever and whenever we can, you know, I might call her Yorth. You might call her Pachamama. How, however you call her, however you know her, stand up and fight for her. And and not just you know. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's it's enlightened self-interest too. I mean, <laughs> you're living on the body of the Earth Mother. You have a stake, an immediate stake in this black snake not winning this fight. So do whatever it is in your power to do. Wow, we're really on a roll tonight. You know that? Yeah.
yeah, I, I'm just, I, I'm feeling, whew, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm feeling it too, so I understand. I got you. Yeah. I got you. Um, I suppose we should probably, we can turn to one other topic here, though, that's, uh, that we did receive a message. Mm-hmm. Through Facebook, uh, that someone had some questions, and uh, we can address that if you would like. You want me to go ahead and read that, and we can get started with it. What do you think? Yeah, let's let's switch gears. Let's, All right, let's do we'll switch gears. We'll we'll go on to a whole different rant. So <laughs> 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 All right, um, let me see if I can find the exact message here. This is from. Uh, I won't won't use names. I'm just going to use the initial G. G sent us a message about shamanism. Uh, I'm interested in knowing about shamanism. I've always felt the call, and my life's been filled with spiritual and supernatural, quote-unquote, experiences. I've looked over many religions, and nothing ever really satisfied me. I've recently learned about animism, and it seems a good start. I'm really into energy, and I believe everything has an essence to it. It's a start for shamanism, I would think. I work with animal totems, and I enjoy scrying with the tarot. I know a lot about astrology and magic in general, and I would go on about the things I do and enjoy, but another time. I just bought Shamanism for White People by Michael William Denny. So far, it's decent. Apparently, you have to be trained by a shaman to be one. I guess you just can't naturally, instinctively be one. Neo-shamanism is more of what I'm thinking about. It seems more accessible and eclectic. I'm not sure, though. What are your thoughts about my rant? What's the main difference between practicing shamanism and animism? I'd appreciate your feedback. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. So let's start with basic <laughs> where, terms. Where do you want to start with that one? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's start with basic terms so we have a working lexicon. Uh, this is my usual approach to stuff like this. we we got to define terms so we know what we're actually talking about. So we, we tapped on a little bit about what shamanism is um, in our last episode. I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of go back over some of that territory. Um, so shamanism is uh, a shaman in particular is a spiritual specialist, and the word comes from Ivink and Tungus peoples, and it means a particular spiritual specialist for a particular people in their culture and religions. And I, I want to emphasize that this is a, a culture term. Um, this is not our term, per se. This is something that comes from another culture, but we work with it because people understand what you mean when you say shaman, generally speaking. Uh, for our purposes, a shaman is somebody who has been appointed by the spirits. It's a job title that describes somebody who is an intermediary for a community of spirits. Now, this may be a, commu- a community of spirits with a human community or without one. Mm-hmm. There are some shamans that never interact with a human community that only serve the spirits. Um, so shamanism is what you do in that role as a shaman. So shamanism is kind of a misnomer. There, there is no shamanic religion per se it's wrapped up in culture and other religions shaman mm-hmm. being a shaman is a job title does that kind of work for you yeah that works great for me maybe actually i'm wondering uh if you might want to talk about 
shaman versus like say a spirit spirit worker or some one of the other terms that uh, uh, Kraskova and and uh, Caldera have used in the past. Those are useful to help kind of differentiate, I think, a little bit. Yeah. So, at least as far as the northern traditions concerned, the difference between a spirit worker and a shaman is that a shaman in our tradition goes through a death and rebirth ritual. And the reason we use the word shaman instead of spirit worker is because we don't have a precise term for a shaman. Um, so we use, honestly, we, we use what works. And that is the closest thing we've got. Mm-hmm. Um, but a spirit worker is somebody who essentially does the work that a shaman does. They both work with this, this community of spirits, in this case, God's ancestors and Vetir of the northern tradition and heathen religions and so the shaman or the spirit worker is embedded within the religion and culture of the northern tradition and or heathenry and that is a group of religions that worships northern european gods ancestors and spirits Mm -hmm. so the way we use that term is it's a job title um it doesn't make you better or worse than anybody else. It doesn't make you inherently more holy. It means that you might do a lot more cleansing and holy work than other people, but mm-hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean that you're better. It just describes what you do. <laughs> right, right. I think, I think, uh, and, and in a similar vein, an animist is not any particular religion or faith, but it mm-hmm. is a world outlook and a way that you interact with the world around you. I think there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's, there's undertones of animism in all kinds of different religions and faiths, and and people don't realize that they wouldn't call it that necessarily. But when they feel like they've got a relationship, you know, even the most devout Christian will probably name their car, or mm-hmm. you know, something along those lines. Feel like they have a friendly uh, apple tree in the front yard, that sort of thing. So that's uh, something that crosses various different uh, religions and cultures, whether they intend it to or not. Yeah. And like you said, animism is a worldview, just like polytheism is a worldview, and and polytheism has animism in it. Mm -hmm. And animism at its core is everything has or is potentially ensouled. That's, you know, if I had to sum up in a sentence, everything has or has the potential to be ensouled. Yeah. That's that I can work with that. So when we're talking about shamanism, um, someone that is interested in learning, really what they're looking at, I would say, is learning. Ideally, there would be an aptitude there where spirit it wants to speak to you anyway. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's forced on people. Sometimes it's something that they, they hope for or seek out. Um, but it's not until you develop a certain set of skills, which is really what we're talking about when people are talking about learning shamanism, is, is learning various skills and ways of doing things, certain ceremony. And it's at that point in time that a community may or may not call you a shaman. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that, it, would you find that to be true? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I also want to put another line in the sand is that there's shamanic techniques. That is, there's Correct. there's stuff that's part of a shaman's toolkit that most anybody could access. And then there's being a shaman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. So there's a shamanic practitioner on the one hand. That is, anybody 
who uses these tools from the toolkit. Mm. And then there's the initiated shaman who is noble. The spirits have picked this person or drug this person kicking and screaming, depending on your culture or religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a huge dividing line in the sand. Right. Cause someone, know. someone could learn a technique from, mm-hmm. okay, so we'll use a name that's, not one of my favorites by any means, but but is very familiar to a lot of people. And we'll use the name Harner, for example. So you he could learn some techniques from Harner, like journey work and that sort of thing. However, they've got all the cultural references stripped from them. So that's where it gets into that territory of you must be taught shamanism, or you might be taught a lineage or a tradition, because those cultural references are ever so important to a lot of the work that we do. That's not to say that it's impossible. I've, I've known some people that I would genuinely call shaman that are not working with any sort of tradition or lineage. However, for most uh, shamanic cultures, the, the overall culture and the community and how you interact with it is part and parcel. It is, is integral with that title and having it bestowed on you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it it goes to the core of anybody can start a fire. Mm-hmm. You can you can. There's YouTube videos the world over that will teach you how to make a fire using flint and steel and char cloth and you know doing things the oldest of the old fashioned ways. What makes the difference between somebody who's initiated and in doing spirit work with sacred fire is that they've been initiated. Mm-hmm. That that they have not only the technical expertise but the spiritual expertise and the spiritual recognition from their spirits and from their and from their initiator from their community, um, whether that's a community of spirits or a community with an actual physical teacher. I think I also want to throw in there that for a lot of people that are curious about learning, um, becoming a shaman is not the end all and be all. No, certainly if, not. If for for a more, uh, if if you're looking to improve your life or maybe your family's life, some few people around you you might be much better off and serve and serve your family yourself a lot better by being a practitioner by being someone who uses techniques and has some interaction with spirit being a full-blown shaman is kind of like being i mean it's it's that priest that's always on call it's that you're going to you might lose your job because at 3 in the morning some spirit says hey we got to go down to the lake and we do this or that you might be the guy that is or or, or gal that is uh, homeless because they said get in the car and go until you run out of gas and we're going to live in the woods for three months. It's not a happy, skippy experience necessarily. You might even be one of those people that uh, the near-death experience is common. So you might be the one that's fighting a, a terrible cancer or a heart attack or has some other sort of breakdown. It's not necessarily the end-all, be-all to be a shaman. Yeah, Um and I'm not really getting too much of this off of the message here, but no. The, but I, I think it's the, important to the, talk about the other people that might be yeah. tuning in. So yeah, it it th- there's I need a caution against spiritual tourism with this stuff mm-hmm. because just picking up techniques doesn't make you a shaman, and right. picking up techniques does not mean that you've got expertise or aptitude. So you know, uh, something that, uh, and I'm going to pick on Harner and and the. Center for Shamanic Studies here, but one of the one of the the great follies that has erupted out of that has been, well, I went to a weekend workshop. I'm a shaman now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, you're mm-hmm. not. 
no, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but no. <laughs> uh, a weekend is not enough. You know, a, a workshop is not enough. This, this takes years and years of, of hard work and dedication and devotion. I mean, it would yeah. be, you know, this is a commitment. It, it's all about the relationship with the spirits. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's not like you're going to spend six months with Odin and then that's going to go away. You're talking, guess what? This is going to be here the rest of your life with a Pachumama, with a Inditaita, with any of them. This is going to be there the mm-hmm. rest of your life. These are not relationships that you're going to walk away from. So it's hard. There's a lot of commitment there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, for, for cultural reference points, you know, read any book by an indigenous person on their experience of being grabbed up by the spirits. And it will give you some clue. It won't give you everything because we, even I won't talk about everything with my students. Right. Cause I can't, there are some experiences that have to be behind that wall of this is a mystery and the spirits, if they want to bring you into this teaching, will bring it into you. However, and it's, it's yeah. not even about, you know, hi, you know, hiding anything. It's just, you know, until you've had the experience, how can I communicate it to you? Right, right. However, G is on to something when he says that animism is a great start. I mean, oh, yes. where is the first place that you tell your students to begin? I know for me, the first thing, there's two things I'm going to tell you to do first. And, and one of them is to go find someplace that you've got a powerful connection to, you know, someplace where you feel moved. It might be someplace that you've already visited and mm-hmm. uh, um, find a tree or a rock or, or the bend in the river, whatever was speaking to you at that spot and build a relationship, make them offerings, talk to them, listen to them, do a lot of listening to them. And then step number two is start developing your relationship with your ancestors in the, in the spirits of the people who have come before you. That sort of basic relationship building is fundamental to animism and anything that you want to do going forward. Yep. Yeah. My, my, the first thing I recommend, especially if they've uh, inquired about animism, polytheism, anything is start with the ancestors. Mm-hmm. They're, they're directly invested in your well-being. Even if the last generation or two have been utter jerks, go back further. You yeah. know, and, yeah. and the point is not to necessarily be like, okay, we're going to fix all these relationships right now. It's to connect with the good ancestors in your line that are willing to connect with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not about fixing your ancestral lines or any of that other stuff. This is purely about connecting with the good ancestors who will do good work with you. Um, so, yeah, the first thing out of the gate that I do for students is set up a home altar. And dedicate it to your gods, your ancestors, and your spirits. You know, if you've already got relationships you started with the gods, good luck. And set, you know, five to 15 minutes a day aside for them. You know, and and it doesn't even need to be five to 15 minutes all at one shot. I mean, I do prayers throughout the day. Uh, My family does prayers uh, when we're waiting for the bus to get here. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do prayers for when uh, we eat, uh, when we go to bed, you know. Um, every night or every other night we make offerings of usually water. Like it, you don't have to be like loaded to make good offerings. You have to do it consistently. Then you have to be willing to put the effort in that when you do have a little bit of extra scratch, instead of maybe 
you know, buying yourself that nice new watch. Maybe you spend some money on some good liquor for Odin or something. Right. So, yeah, the reason I start, I, ancestors, same reason as you, I'm going to start with those fundamental good relationships that you have and, and build on those because they're going to protect you. They're going to look over you. And that's honestly the same reason I start with a physical location with the spirit of a rock or mm-hmm. a tree or something else that's very solid in this world is because when you start stepping foot on this path, um, you kind of need something to watch over you and anchor you and something that's going to be there to kind of tug you back. And that's that's what you're asking them for. You're going to say, hey, this boulder, I'm going to sit with it for hour upon hour. I'm going to pray to it. I'm going to talk to it. I'm going to leave it water or tobacco or offerings. And I'm going to ask this stone and listen with my heart and say, will you watch over me? If something's going wrong, if my spirit's adrift, if something is not right, will you help ground me? Will you pull me back? Will you keep an eye on me? Yep. Those initial contacts are of the utmost importance. Um, you know, especially if you're living in a place where you have a good big tree, you know, it doesn't always need to be the tallest, but it has to be one that you resonate with. Um, you know, in, I'm lucky in that we have a sacred grove out back. Mm-hmm. Um, not everybody has that, but you can start visiting a certain park on a certain day and you develop a rapport with the land and you re- develop a rapport with that particular tree or that particular rock. And yeah, this is all about ba- the basics of relationship building is you don't ask for favors from people you see once a year mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. unless you're really up the creek without a paddle. Um, and, I, and, I, and even then. And even then, they may not be willing to help because who are you, who are right. you stranger? <laughs> well, and this is also a good a good place to kind of inter, interject and reaffirm the the thing about cultural perspectives too. Because, uh, say for the yes. the, the local uh, natives, the Anishinaabe, the cedar would be woman's medicine. So G would be it, depending it, without that cultural reference. Like as a Westerner, I might be able to work with a cedar tree. But if I'm trying to really say that I'm a, a medicine worker of a certain tradition there's so many taboos and 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 uh traditions and things that unless i have a deep like bone deep understanding of i'm not going to be able to fit within those parameters mm-hmm. yeah and that's and that really comes down to knowing your stuff doing your research so mm-hmm. if there if there are certain taboos on the land, you will figure them out or you will do research on them and then obey the taboo. Right. Um, or not. And, and suffer the consequences if there are any. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, you know, there's Ask and Embla in our tradition. Ash and Elm is what they're usually translated as. You know, those are special trees. And so, you know, Ash would be a definite male tree and Elm would be a definite female tree. Um, Embla also has another uh, translation for her name, but I can't recall offhand what it is. But it's it's figuring out from the sources that you've got, um, especially if you are. St- this is this is where the culture component really comes into play, hardcore, because there are certain offerings that I make on the land that would not be appropriate whatsoever if it was a native ceremony. Right. I work with alcohol a lot. I brew. I make offerings of whiskey to Odin. I make offerings mm-hmm. of mead on a regular basis. It would not be appropriate for me to do that in a native space whatsoever. That would be wrong and inhospitable and right. uh, um, unhealth 
is what <laughs> unholy. Right, right. Yeah, and even different tribes are going to have different, or, or, or nations or groups are going to have different uh, traditions because for the uh, groups that are here in Michigan area, Mm-hmm. Alcohol would not be good. However, you go down to South America, traditions that I was taught, the Caro, the alcohol is a large part of their ceremonies. It's one of the main things that they would offer to Pachamama. Yeah, and I, again, this is where the cultural perspective is huge. Mm-hmm. You know, So when we talk about animism, it's couched in that understanding that there are certain pathways, culturally speaking, that we are engaging with these spirits. Right. Actually, and that... that if I could call back to a second to uh, G's message again, too, that is one thing that that um, that we could kind of pull out of there and talk about a little bit more with the cultural perspectives. And this is why we, we talk about uh, why you may need teachers when it comes to this stuff. But like, mm-hmm. for example, um, he said that um, I work with animal totems. So I'm going to put it first. Let me put an asterisk in there that we're going to get back to in a minute. But. No, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. You might work with animal spirit helpers. You might work with an animal guide, but you don't work with a totem. Because a totem is a word, uh, it derives from the word, uh, I believe the pronunciation is around uh, nindodum, which Mm -hmm. is a very specific thing. It was considered, by and large, to be the eldest ancestor of a group or at least an elder ancestor, a blood relation to the group. And it brought with it all kinds of taboos and responsibilities. So most people, unfortunately, have picked up this word through New Age philosophy. And New Age has kind of run amok with it. Most people, I'm sorry, you don't have a totem. Now, there are exceptions. You might have... We'll get into the asterisk here. You might have Native American blood, which means you have the potential to have a blood, uh, totem because you do have that bloodline. However, you're missing the cultural component. You're missing all the teachings and all the learnings and all the stories. So that's mm-hmm. an incomplete thing that you need to find out about. The other if asterisk can... is, if I let me finish that, if yep, I yep, could, yep. and then I'll let you go, is the other asterisk is, is that this is also an experience that is found in, for example, European cultures. So in in the Slavic traditions, in some of the Norse traditions, yes, you might be related to uh, the spirit of an animal or a plant. However, that we would use a different term for that. We would use it, it, it might at least on some level be a similar or same thing but we wouldn't use that term for it because that would be incorrect as well. It would be insensitive to the culture and the origin of the word. Yeah, it's important to note, and I was just going to bring in the the, the Ojibwe People's Dictionary, which is at ojibwe.lib, O-J-I-B-W-E dot L-I-B dot U-M-N dot E-D-U. The main entry for dudem notes there's no simple independent word for clan or totem. It's a personal prefix that goes with the dependent noun stem. That is, nindudem, indudem, ndudem is my clan. Or, kidudem, your clan. There is no dudem. There's no such thing. In in the language, gotcha. <laughs> it's only when it's only ah, when adding to white, the layers there. That's great. Yeah, it's only when white people took the word totem out of context that 
the meaning of Gudem is separated out of its mm-hmm. ground culture, and that is you relate to it. You don't. It, there is no. It's not separate. It's it's. There's no simple independent word for it. Right. It says it right there, and so when somebody says, "Well, I, I work with this totem," um, no. <laughs> like I said, no. there, there might be similar analogies in Western or, or you know Norse and in, in Slavic cultures, that sort of thing, but it's not the same thing. The closest thing we have, and we don't really have words for this beyond maybe filgia, which is mm-hmm. um, helper, follower, um, and we have uh, vorder, and that is uh, guardian. But Nothing that quite gets to the quick of ndudem, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We we don't have that kind of word, um, but uh, I, I can go over you know what a filgia is really quick. Sure. And and there's about there's a couple different schools of thought on it, and it depends on what lore you're reading and what trans translator and what interpreter. But the the basic idea is that a filgia or a filgia is. Um, a, a follower spirit, like a fetch. That is, this is a spirit that watches over you. That's a guardian spirit. It might appear in the form of an animal. If it appears in the form of a human being, your death is near and you need to watch out. Uh, there are other folks. I, I fall into the camp of where a filgia translates to follower, and that means that this is a spirit that follows and watches out or maybe teaches. Mm-hmm. Uh, I fall into that camp where okay. a filigree isn't necessarily a fetch, but when you see it in human form, it's definitely a pay attention, watch out. Um, so I'm kind of a blend of those two camps. Uh, and the third is that you never should see it. <laughs> the third camp <laughs> is you never, ever should see it because if you do, your death is imminent and you need to you know, uh, prepare to face your death or or be very cautious. Right. Um, so those are the three basic camps of what a filigree is. And then the vorder is guardian, and that's, you know, a guardian of your clan, a guardian of your people, a guardian of you. Well, uh, and there's a divination a, method you can do to figure that out. In a, in a, in a broader context, I suppose, a, a less culturally specific context, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, even animal spirit helpers come in different points. Like they're, what, I, what I try to point out to people is there may be an animal spirit that's with you for your entire life, but there may also be ones that are with you for just one teaching or just one moment or just one phase. There's, there's mm-hmm. a lot of different ways to look at that. And uh, so that's a thing that you need to factor in is that it's not, I don't know, it's just not as cut and dry as, as so many of the, the New Age or, or neo-shamanic books would have you think. Yeah, um, and a perfect example of that is, uh, you know, in the terms of Vorder, the Guardian sticks with you pretty much through your life. That's the that's the understood concept behind a Vorder. And it takes on an animal form, sometimes a human form, it depends. But um, generally speaking, it's it's that thing, and it's that thing for the course of your life till you die. Um, and possibly it's passed on to your, your next generation if you have one. So... Um, it's also important that as we start looking at this through different cultural lenses that we're not mistaking one for the other. Like, mm-hmm. a vorder is not a tutelary spirit. <laughs> it's there to protect you. <laughs> right. It's, right, it's, not, right. it's not necessarily there to teach you how not to be a fool in terms of working with this or that spirit. Um, 
you know, you're, you know, if you want to learn how to work with the elves, the best kind of spirit to speak with is, is a person that knows the elves for one, before you start working with different spirits that you don't know. And for two, um, working with different gods or ancestors that are connected with those spirits that you have personal connections with barring that going and talking to the spirit itself, but not assuming that, you know, um, you know, this spirit translates to that is, is a big part of avoiding the muddying of the waters and, and making sure that we're keeping our, our terms clear. So, mm -hmm. you know, when I say tutelary spirit, I mean, anything that comes to teach you something, it doesn't matter for how long or how short it's with you. Right. So, so let's dovetail off of that a little bit and talk about, uh, he says, uh, um, apparently you have to be trained by a shaman to be one, which I think we've covered a little bit with the cultural mm -hmm. aspects, but you can't just naturally instinctively be one is the other part of that. To which I would say, you can be spirit taught. I mean, yes, that, you can. that is not, I mean, we have to assume where the first shaman and the first spiritual workers learned their stuff from, and it was spirit taught. However, it does kind of put you in a, a position of no feedback loop, no support, no way of verifying things. Um, it puts you in a precarious position where you could very easily start talking to your inner sock puppets. Yep. Yeah, I mean, when when indigenous cultures like the Sami have, have words for shamans that are purely spirit-taught, this is a phenomenon that is understood in, in cultures that have shamans. Mm -hmm. But is it common? I would say mm, depends on the culture. I would say that it's more common in, in Western cultures that are disconnected from these kinds of roots purely because the spirits are going to use the inroads they get. Well, and even in the traditions that are, are uh, where you can be spirit-taught, spirit-taught is more acceptable, there are certain metrics. If you just show up and say, you know, spirit taught me this, there are certain metrics that the other people that are practitioners are going to use. So the, the example that I'll, I'll, I'll give is there was, um, there was, and I, I, you'll have to forgive me, I forget what part of the world this comes from, this story, because uh, my memory is, is a colander as always. I remember, I get bits and pieces, but <laughs> the, uh, essentially there was someone that was reported to be a shaman. And so, um, was reported to be talking to spirits and be a spirit worker. And so these, there was a group of holy men and it was their entire job to go and verify, to find out if people really are talking to the spirits or not. So this culture had that built in. You could be spirit taught, but you were going to have to have, you had people that were specialists in verifying this. And mm -hmm. in, in the short version of the story, when they went to the, the village, they, they basically said, no, no, this person just has a mental illness. And so, mm -hmm. you know, that does happen. And um, so that's the risk that you can get taught by spirit, but you have to be very careful. I would say, even if you're not following a specific tradition, if you're trying to learn, you should at least have ideally a peer group or a mentor. Ideally, well, yeah, a mentor and a support group. The thing, yeah. the thing about shamans is that, generally speaking, your shaman might have lived apart, but he wasn't alone. Yeah, right. That's a great point. Like living apart is different than living um, completely on your own. Um, and 
it's it's worth pointing out that, and again, this really depends on culture. So speaking too broadly on this is yeah, we're 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 yeah we're trying to paint a broad brush here a little bit. We we just by the nature of these questions, we risk running afoul of of certain fine points, but we're we're doing our best. So just stick with us here. <laughs> yeah. So I mean. The thing, the thing about uh, shamanism is that we, at least in, in the northern tradition, we often live apart from one another, but we're not separate. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a very scattered community in terms of the northern tradition shamanic folks and the shamanic practitioners, but we're not totally isolated from one another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really important point to take home is that you know, especially if you're looking into being a shaman, you have to really understand that you are radically connected to the world around you in an even deeper tie than you would normally. Um, especially, even if you're just looking for that connection, you are asking for a deeper, firmer, sometimes more strict tie to the world around you and what you do in your conduct in this world than you would normally. If you enjoy a freewheeling lifestyle, um, this is not probably the thing for, to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and you know, in some ways, that's the hazard of being. If you're trying to come to this path after learning about other spiritual paths, like say you're coming to this after a more uh, ceremonial background, ceremonial magic, or 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 Wiccan or something, you might come at this with a, an approach that's too too much, too human centric, too much. I'm in charge. And uh, that'll get you in trouble really fast as well. And in working with a peer group, I always think is important. I look at my uh, my apprentices, and like they'll have an experience with, uh, uh, say, Otorongo, the jaguar. Someone will have an experience with jaguar, and they'll, you know, message the rest of the apprentices and say, "Does this sound right? Does this sound like something that she'd say?" And and then you get this immediate feedback of. Well, it's not something she'd say to me, but I could hear her saying that. Or, oh yeah, that sounds just like her. Something said she said something similar to me once. So that feedback is just so important. Yeah, and this is this is where a peer group and a mentor and a community that is supportive of the work is so critical. Mm-hmm. Because if you're just doing this and it's all in your own home, all in your own head, and and that's the real danger is is. Because this cannot be done just in your head. <laughs> there has to be physical components, emotional components, spiritual components, things where you're you're not just, oh, I'm, I'm making an offering by reading this book. It's, oh, I'm making an offering by actually leaving out physical offerings. I'm actually doing real physical work. I am chopping the wood. I'm carrying the water. I am mm-hmm. making fire. You, you have to actually be doing things. This cannot be a mental exercise, nor can it only be a physical thing. Because just learning about animals and plants is one side of it. Mm-hmm. You know, doing doing the book work, doing the the out in nature work is one part of it. But you also have to do your internal work and do the spirit work, and so that all comes into a full lived, circled relationship of, and I, I call it uh, gabo after the rune gift for gift. You know, and gabo literally translates to gift. Well, it's. It's Gabo and Gabo, so it's gift and gift. So you have to meet these spirits, not only halfway sometimes, you have to meet them 70, 80, 90, sometimes 100%, and then just wait for them to eventually down the road to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And it's just like any other relationship. 
And sometimes you're going to have really good days where you want to get up and you want to chop that wood and carry that water. And then there are some days where you just want to throw the axe down, say, screw it. I'm not doing it. I don't care if I need this cord of wood. I'm sitting on my butt today. <laughs> so G asked a lot of questions and uh, mentioned a book, Shamanism for White People by uh, oh, Michael William Denny. I, I admit I'm not familiar with that book. I've never read Nor it. Nor I. But so let's give a give a good book recommendation for some place that you would start. If you were if you were going to recommend a book to somebody, where would you start? I always start with Neolithic shamanism, and I, I will fully admit my bias because Glena is my elder, and as was Raven in the tradition. Um, but for me, I, I point my students to that first because it teaches you how to work with the spirits of the northern tradition before you work with most of the gods. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the biggest gods you work with in that are um, uh, Sun and Mani. Um, and a lot of it is about connecting with the world and connecting with it in a spiritual manner. But also there's a, a chapter on connecting with the earth, connecting with fire, air, water, ice, uh, and connecting with different crafts to make sacred objects and how to do all that. So Neolithic shamanism is my go-to. Mm -hmm. And I think um, a book by James Andretti comes to mind. Um, there was a, a book he put out for um, beginning shamans if my memory is not uh, faltering on me there. Yeah. It sounds familiar. I'm, it's right there on the tip of my mind, but I can't quite, you know, I basically where I would go, one of the uh, first books I would, I would think about for, for a, a questioner in a lot of ways. Uh, one that, one of the ones that I really like a lot uh, is actually the teen spirit guide to modern shamanism by the aforementioned earlier in this episode, uh, S Kelly Harrell. And don't let the teen part of that book title fool you. She talks a lot about the various definitions in a way that we just did. She lays a lot of things out. And what's more important or more fascinating to me, I guess, about this is she approaches it from a workbook approach where she's going to give you thought exercises that you can think about and, and come to your own conclusions or um, explore your own inner psyche on some of these topics in, in, in a way that's productive. And I have a lot of respect for her. That was a great book. And um, something that's just a little bit broad that'll give you a taste of a lot of different types of shamanism, a lot of different shamanic practices. Um, I am a fan of Sacred Hoop magazine. Uh, Nicholas Breeze Wood, who is the, the uh, creator and editor of that magazine, has a very uh, strong connection to traditional shamanic cultures and practices he does not put up with a lot of new age floof-floof and so that magazine reflects it it reflects a lot of articles by people who who walk the path and walk their talk and uh, but it's interesting because you can get a lot of different perspectives out of it um, but being that nicholas is the is the editor it's just not going to have a lot of junk in it yeah um, and I also recommend some some uh, well-vaunted books on shamanism. I think that uh, the seminal work of Mircea Eliade, um, sometimes he, I've said his name is Mircea Eliade. Mm -hmm. uh, he is a Romanian writer and historian of religion. And he was foundational to the modern study of shamanism in anthropology. 
And yeah, he's kind of been backed off in a lot of circles, but his his shamanic techniques of ecstasy is still a book that a lot of folks go to to learn some of the background on how we know what we know about mm-hmm. shamanism. So doing your book work and looking into more recent studies, um, shamanisms and neo-shamanism is the title, and I do not remember the author off the top of my head, but I just finished reading that not too long ago, and it goes into a very bare-bones approach to shamanic and neo-shamanic practitioners from an anthropological perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, get your hands on some decent college textbooks, if nothing else, and take it from both the intellectual approach and from the spirit-based approach. I mean, that's what I do with my own students. So I heavily recommend it for anybody that's interested in spirit work and shaman work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's great advice. And I mean, you, you've done that with your your own work. Uh, I know you done a lot of referencing back to older um i think it was a catholic priest who wrote down most of the the stuff in one of your books that- yeah exactly um uh, the inca religions and customs there was a uh, father uh, bernabi kobo and uh yeah wrote down a lot of those practices and it's interesting because he was just observing things and dismissing most of them however coming from the perspective of learning this path from the descendants of the Inca, I can look at those same passages and go, oh, I see what they're really doing. Or, hmm, I wonder what would happen if I incorporate that into something that I'm already doing. So it, it, taking that dual approach is vital. Yeah, because, I mean, we're living these paths. It, it cannot just be static in a book, and it cannot just be you know, um, well, I'm just going to go out and I'm going to try this thing. I'm going to try this thing and have no consistency in my practice either. And so a lot of mediating of extremes and sometimes intentionally going to one extreme or the other is just part of the gig. Mm -hmm. Yep. I Um, agree with that. Yeah. All right. I think we have beat the heck out of that topic. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Gee, I hope that you get a lot of information out there. Uh, feel free to, Follow up, send us another message if we if you need clarification on anything. But uh, yes, please uh, we do. Appreciate the question. And anybody, if you've got a question that you want to send to us, um, you can send it to me at Jim at thewanderingowl dot com or Sarenth. Yep, and I'll be at at Sarenth on Twitter and Sarenth at gmail dot com. And it doesn't have to just be about shamanism. It no. can be about and it can be about our spiritual paths, the things we've referenced on the show things that you'd like us to cover and it doesn't necessarily have to do with spirit work although you know i'll be honest i'm biased toward it for the context yeah no we we're you know we talked about comic books earlier you've got something that really connected to you from a comic book that you still carry around with you there's a certain passage in american gods which really opened up some of your spirituality Mm -hmm. um if there's anything like that, you know, drop us a message and let us know. Or if you're using the Anchor app, you can leave us a voicemail and we can incorporate it right into the show. So feel free to check out the Anchor app and, and give us some feedback that way. Yep. All right, yeah, I my think, brother, I think uh, I think that's a good show point at this point in time. What do you think? I, I'm good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So with that, I guess we'll call it a wrap-up. Thank you, everybody, for joining us tonight. Um, I'll see about posting up a Best Of, a Jaguar and the Owl with uh, Kelly Harrell, as we mentioned before. And um, 
share the show. If you could take a moment to all those different platforms that we are on with this show, your favorite platform, whatever it may be, go and give us a good review. Give us five stars. Do whatever you can and share the show. Share the link. Share it on Twitter. Share it on Facebook. Help us get the word out because the more that we can grow the more that we can do and we're just doing it because we want to talk to you guys we want to talk to the spiritual community we want to talk to people that are that are seeking and and this is part of our task we uh, can i go ahead and say this Sarah, that you and i both yep. got knocked on the head fairly recently mm-hmm. and spirit's been teaching us and spirit's been telling us that uh if you're going to teach, you've got to teach. If you've got yep. to, if you're going to uh, do these things for us, you got to do it being out front, standing in the lead. And so um, here we are. <laughs> yep. Here we are doing the work. So That's right. help us do the work. So bring with, your questions in. So thank yeah, you very much. Thank you, everybody. And with that, we'll call it a wrap. Thank you, Sarah, for uh, another great show. And I'm, thank I'm you, looking brother. forward to doing it again. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and have a great night. Good night, folks.
now.